Acts chapter 13 uh, today. If you don't have a Bible, we can give you a Bible. You can just raise your hand. Matthew will pass out a Bible to you so you can follow along in the text. Everybody good on Bibles today? Yeah? Okay. If you have your Bible, as I mentioned, we'll be in Acts chapter 13. Uh, we started off uh, in the first 16 Verses last week, we're going to close out the chapter this week, which means we have quite a bit to get through. Um, but before we get into any of it, if you would please pray with me. Lord, we give this time to you. We ask for an anointing of your spirit. We pray that you would fill us, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and hear, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, God, that uh, this wouldn't just be uh, another message for any of us, uh, but we would recognize that the living God wants to speak to us personally. Lord, we know you want to meet us where we're at right now. So I pray that we would see that and we would hear it and we would recognize uh, that there's something in this chapter that you want each and every one of us to pull. Uh, so God, I pray uh, that you would prepare our hearts to do just that. Uh, teach us as we dive into your word. In your name, amen. All right. Uh, so big event happened earlier in Acts chapter 13. If you recall, our good buddies, Paul and Barnabas, they were called by the Holy Spirit and sent out as missionaries. Prior to that, they were doing a bunch of ministry in Antioch for over a year. Well, the church in Antioch was thriving. They had lots of prophets and teachers, so they were spiritually equipped. So God says, hey, I want you guys to go to the next place. And he guides them through several places throughout the area that we discussed in Acts chapter 13. Well, we ended in Acts chapter 13 at the first part of verse 16. Paul and Barnabas, they're in a synagogue in which was the custom. Uh, the leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, he gave the opportunity for those who could teach to teach. And they asked Paul, hey, do you got something you want to say? Paul, knowing his calling, he stands up, embraces it, and preaches the gospel. Now, we're going to get into the message that Paul preached specifically in the end of Acts chapter 13. But I want us to note that as Paul takes the listeners through the history of Israel, his primary point is to point people to Jesus. This is the title of this teaching. Called to point to Jesus. Called to point to Jesus. Now that's not just for the Apostle Paul. That's for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us that know the Lord have a moral obligation to point other people to Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the main theme of this entire book, the book of Acts. If you remember, uh, way back when Jesus made the promise of the Holy Spirit and got specific with it, uh, he said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, what? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses to me. That was the main purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit. Then it's the still the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. Now that we would be empowered to point people to Jesus, to bear witness of his name and of his character and of his works. That's exactly what Paul's going to allude to to hear as he walks these listeners through this brief history of Israel. Let's look at it. It's Acts chapter 13, verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Who's he addressing? The men of Israel and the God-fears. The God-fears were Gentiles that recognized the God of Judaism. They recognized the God of the Old Testament. Okay, so he's addressing everyone there in the synagogue. Now, what's interesting about this sermon is that it's very similar to the sermon that we see in Acts chapter 7. You remember the sermon that Stephen preached? Basically, his whole idea was very similar. He took all the listeners through the history of Israel to point to the fact that they've been rejecting God from the beginning and they're still rejecting God now by rejecting his son and the gospel that he preached and accomplished, really. So, that's interesting to me 
Because who do we know that was there when Stephen was martyred after that message? Paul the Apostle was there. So even though Paul didn't get saved right away, he got saved a little while afterwards, it seems it's revealed through this text that that, he didn't forget that message. That that message sat with him. He recognized the power behind Stephen's preaching and he almost in a ways mimics some of the things that Stephen says. It's a very similar style, different words. That message, I believe, sat with Paul the Apostle forever. So let's look at this message, starting in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Starts off, hey, we're God's chosen people. Remember what God did way back so many years ago when our ancestors were enslaved in Egypt. If you've ever read Exodus or done a study on that, we know after Genesis comes Exodus, we see long after Joseph died that the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They don't get any days off. They kind of have a pretty brutal lifestyle. The Pharaoh at the time, he really doesn't like them. He's putting more and more of a burden on their shoulders. Life isn't very good for the Israelites. They're in bondage to the Egyptians. And then what did God do? Well, through a series of 10 plagues, he miraculously delivered the people. Went to the wilderness, then the promised land. We'll talk about it here in a second. But we see that this picture of the Israelites in the bondage of Egypt is a picture of us before Jesus miraculously intervened in our life. Maybe none of you have been to Egypt. Maybe you have. But the Bible teaches us that we were slaves to sin. We were enslaved enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to sin. And Jesus, through his outstretched arm, he reached his hand out to us and he pulled us out of the bondage of sin. He brought us into a life of freedom just as God did with the Israelites so long ago. Acts chapter 13 Verse 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. As we mentioned, from Egypt, they went where? They went to the wilderness before they entered the promised land. Well, God, why did he bring them through the wilderness? He gives us the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. He says, I brought you all these years through the wilderness to humble you and to test you and to see what was in your hearts, whether or not you would keep my commandments. The wilderness isn't a fun place to be. And sometimes we go through these seasons of wilderness that were in the wilderness, seasons of drought, seasons of trial, seasons of tribulations, seasons when it seems like everything that can go wrong is going wrong. Why? Well, One of the main reasons is God is doing to us what he did to the Israelites so long ago. It's not because he's mad at us or he wants to punish us. No, rather it's to help us. It's to humble us. It's to test us. It's to see what's in our hearts, whether or not we'll keep his commandments. It's often easy to follow the Lord when everything's good. doesn't take a lot of faith to follow the Lord when everything's good. But when we're in the wilderness, when we're going through struggle... When the sun's beating on us and we have no water and we seem to have no hope, where do we find our hope? We find our hope in the Lord and he tells us that that's one of the things that he tries to produce in us through the wilderness. In Romans chapter 5 verse 3 to 5, it says not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So he takes us to the wilderness not to destroy our hope or our faith, but rather to build it up. That's what he was trying to accomplish with the Israelites in the wilderness. He wanted them to learn to trust him. Acts chapter 13, verse 19 And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So 
they finally get to the promised land. The promised land? Yeah, the land that God promised Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. This was a long-awaited promise, but God said, hey, Abraham, the land that I'm taking you to, I'm going to bring all your descendants back to this land, and this is going to be the land of your inheritance. But we also see a picture of Jesus in all of this. Why? Well, Moses, Moses represented the law because God gave him the law. And we see that Moses never entered the promised land. Why? Because he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock and he struck it twice. So God said, hey, despite all your effort and energy and all these things you've done for my people, you're not entering the promised land. We can look at that. That's kind of harsh, Lord. You walk Moses through all of that and, and now he doesn't even get to enter the promised land, but it was for a greater purpose. See, Moses representing the law teaches us that the law doesn't get us to the promised land. Following the law doesn't get us to the promised land because we can't completely follow the law. Who brought the people into the promised land? It was Joshua. The Hebrew for Joshua is Yeshua. The Greek is Jesus. Only through Jesus can we enter the promised land. Only through Jesus can we have eternal life. So Paul shares, after they went into the promised land, look at verse 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Enslaved for 430 years, in the wilderness for 40 years, now 450 years between um, them entering the promised land and Samuel coming on the scene. Well, why did God implement this uh, authority of judges? Why did he put these judges in place? After Joshua died, God recognized that the people still needed spiritual leadership. In fact, in Judges chapter 2, it tells us what would happen when the judges died. It's Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 19. I'm still getting used to this Bible. Judges 2, 19 says... And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their own stubborn way. He also says in Judges, the people just did whatever they wanted. When they didn't have a judge, when they didn't have spiritual authority in their life, they were prone to fall into idolatry. It's a lesson for us. This is one of the reasons God places authority in our lives. But one of the bigger reasons is he places spiritual authority in our lives to keep us from falling into idolatry. Every time the people didn't have that spiritual leader, they were prone to worship other gods. So God often, he puts certain people in our life, maybe it's a mentor or a a pastor or whoever into our lives for us to connect with so that we don't keep falling back into idolatry. And if we're not willing to seek out that spiritual leadership, if we reject it, if we don't want it, just as the Israelites do, did, we're prone to, doesn't mean we definitely will, but we are prone to fall into idolatry. Acts chapter 13, verse 21. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Okay, so Samuel was the last official judge. Samuel, he wasn't just a judge, he was also a priest and a prophet. A very unique set of uh, spiritual authorities, if you will. Uh, So, Samuel had a lot of responsibilities. He was called upon during a very dark time in the history of Israel, and he actually anointed the first two kings of Israel. But before we had David, who did we have? We had King Saul. Why did we have King Saul? Because the people asked for a king. See, from the beginning, God was supposed to be the king of the people. God knew eventually that they'd want a king, but God originally was supposed to be their king. The people rejected the kingship of Yahweh. Why? It says because they wanted to be like the other surrounding nations of Israel. They literally wanted to be like the world around them. So God says, okay, you want to be like the world around you? You want a king? I'm going to give you the king that you long for, the desire of your heart. I'm going to give you the tallest, 
most good-looking man in the land. The one from all outward appearance. He looks like the real deal. But guess what? This king is going to bring destruction into Israel. And he's not going to be a very good king. God, though he knows what's best for his children, when his children are persistent enough, he gives them over to their desires. He gives them what they want. When he can't get through to them, when he keeps saying, you're not supposed to have this, at least not now, God says, okay, you want it bad enough? I'll give it to you. I'll show you. It's Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, this applies to humanity in general, those who don't recognize God. It also applies to us as well that do. Verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. There's a lot there, but the primary point is basically God saying through Paul, they've rejected the truth and they're worshiping other things other than the creator. And God says, I'm going to give you over to your vile passions. If you don't want me and you want that, go for it. But as you seek that, as you worship that, it's going to bring you to a place of destruction. This morning, uh, before I got here, I found out that another one of my friends died. Uh, his mom found him dead in his room with a needle in his arm. And I'm going, man, this I, I was good friends with this guy all throughout high school. And even for a time, we went to the same college. And I'm going, why does this happen? Because God gives people over to their vile passions. He gives them what they want. If they persist and they don't listen... And they won't hear him or anybody that's trying to speak wisdom in their life. And they keep going and going and going and going. He says, okay, you want it bad enough, here you go. But the results of this are going to be catastrophic. And the same holds true for us, even for believers. When we keep seeking and seeking and seeking the things that God doesn't want for us, he'll give them to us eventually. But when we realize what will come of those things, well, they often regret it. So they gave him the king. God gave him the king that they desired. And it didn't pan out. So it says in verse 22. And when he had removed him, talking about King Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. David was a good looking guy. But from the outward appearance, he's not someone that you pick out of a crowd pretty normal. But God says, this is my man. Why? Because it wasn't about the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. God, he looks at the heart. And though David was a flawed man, if you've been with us on Wednesdays, uh, we're learning about how flawed David was. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a deceiver to name just a few things, a bad father to say the least. But he had one thing going for him. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. And even though he messed up, when he messed up, he recognized his mistakes. And he always turned from his sin and turned back to God. That's all that separated Saul and King David. It was their desire for God, their love for God. God doesn't choose us because we bring so much to the table. He chooses those who love him back. So David, through David... God gave a specific promise. Look at verse 23. From this man's seed, speaking of David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, savior, Jesus. So if you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we see the Davidic covenant, uh, the covenant that God made with David. And essentially, uh, God told him that there was going to be a king through his lineage that was going to rule and reign forever. Literally, he promised him the Messiah is going to come through your lineage. This is really the point of this entire sermon. And this is what Paul is trying to allude to. All the Old Testament and all these promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus. This is point number one. It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. The whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, every bit of it points to Jesus. Every book 
in the Old Testament is pointing back to Jesus, whether it's the law and us recognizing, man, these 613 laws are pretty hard to follow. Uh, even the Ten Commandments are hard to follow. I simply can't do it. Yeah, because you're supposed to recognize that you can't. Because the purpose of the law, among other things, was to reveal our sin. The law was given uh, to help us understand that we couldn't keep God's moral standard. And we needed a way out. We needed a Savior from the prophets who promised the Savior is going to come. Through every book in the Old Testament, the whole objective is to point to Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's using their history to point to the Messiah. Verse 24, after John, John the Baptist is speaking of, had first preached before his coming, speaking of the Lord's coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Just before Jesus came on the scene, who was on the scene? It was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord, the coming of Jesus Christ, his first coming. And he says this, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now we have to understand this culturally. Uh, back during that time period and, and before that time period, uh, you had rabbis that had followers. They had disciples and these disciples, these followers, they would follow the rabbi, did what they did, said what they said, the whole deal. But after a while... These rabbis would have these disciples serve them in different capacities, which was okay. But it got taken a little out of hand where the rabbis were making these disciples do some pretty demeaning tasks. Okay, so eventually what they came up with in the culture traditionally is that uh, there were certain things that you couldn't have your followers do. There are certain things that you could not ask them to do, that the, those tasks were too demeaning. One of those tasks was loosing the sandals of your rabbi's feet. So listen to what John's saying. He says, I'm not worthy to do this demeaning task for Jesus. I'm not even worthy to do the most demeaning thing because feet, come on, they're walking around livestock. It's gross. Look at your feet. They're probably not the prettiest in the world, right? Imagine if you're walking around with sandals all the time and there's cows and sheep and everything. They're not going to be very pretty. So they typically wouldn't even have a Jewish, Jewish slave clean someone's feet. That was traditionally left for a Gentile servant to do. So this is one of the reasons that you wouldn't have a follower loose your sandals. And this just shows the epitome of the humility of John the Baptist. He says, I'm not, I'm not worthy to do the most demeaning task for my sake. But we see, as we mentioned, that John's primary calling and purpose was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is point number two. We're called to prepare people for the coming of Christ. He prepared them for his first coming or to prepare people for the Lord's second coming. And as we look at prophecy throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's so obvious that we're getting closer and closer and closer to that time. Will it happen in our lifetime? I have no idea. No one knows the day or the hour. But as we see things getting worse and worse and worse, it's all an indication that the end is right around the corner. So how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? We do the same thing that John the Baptist was called to do. Let me show you. It's Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, now, this is specifically speaking of John the Baptist, but I want you to hear this personally, okay? I want you to hear this for yourself, as if God is speaking to you. Luke chapter 1, verse 76, he says, And you, child, you, child of God, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I'm not saying everyone in here is a prophet. There might be some prophets in here, 
But I am saying, regardless of the gifts God's given you, we're all called to point people that are in darkness to the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We're called to point them to the light. We're called to point them to Jesus Christ. We're called to prepare this world for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because we only have that opportunity while we're here. Once we're gone, we don't have that chance anymore. This was the call of John the Baptist. This is the call for us to be radical followers of Jesus Christ, doing whatever it takes to make sure as many people as possible come to the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No, I'm not saying that everybody has to uh, constrict their diet to locust and honey or wear camel fur uh, or any of that. It's just the reality that we got to consider the time uh, that we live, the area that we do, the era that we dwell in and recognize time is short on this earth. As we're here, we're called to fulfill our purpose and pointing people to Jesus, recognizing that he's coming back any day. Acts chapter 13 Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. He makes this personal, relational, men and brethren. And then he makes it personal. To you, he says, the word of this salvation has been sent. Not just you as a group, you as an individual. See, that's what the gospel is all about. Often the gospel gets preached to groups, but you don't respond to the gospel in groups. You respond to the gospel as an individual. As the gospel is presented to us as individuals, we have a personal responsibility as to whether or not we respond to it. It doesn't matter if your parents believe the gospel. It doesn't matter if... Uh, the, the, the group you hang out with leaves the gospel, believes the gospel. Doesn't matter if they don't believe the gospel. It doesn't matter what anybody else says or does. It matters what we believe. It matters what we do. It matters how we respond to the gospel. Because we're going to see some of these people get saved. We're going to see other people not get saved. The text continues, verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. What does he say? He was one of these guys. These people hear the words of the prophets all pointing to Jesus time and time again as the Old Testament is read every single Sabbath. A section from the Torah and a section from the prophets. And they missed it. They didn't get it. He was standing right in front of them. He was teaching in some of these synagogues. He was teaching in the temple. And they missed the Messiah. Why? The Bible says that the Jews specifically, among other people, have blinders on. They have spiritual blindness. So when the Old Testament is taught, they don't realize that it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the Messiah. So yesterday... Um, we went out for a little bit, me and a few other people, to go pass out fires. Fires? Pliers? Not pliers or fires, flyers. Um, <laughs> to pass out flyers for the barbecue on Wednesday. You know, just going up to people, hey, we're having a free barbecue. You can't, uh, you know, who doesn't want free food, right? That type of thing. I was surprised uh, how many people live down the hill that go to the farmer's market. It's crazy. They're like, yeah, I live in San Diego. I was like, you're coming all the way up here for the farmer's market? <laughs> okay, we'll come up for the barbecue. Um, well, anyway, so one of the first few people that I talked to was, uh, there were, there were these two older ladies, uh, and, and I said, hey, we're having this free barbecue. Yeah, as soon as I said church, uh, one of these ladies says, here you go, I don't want this. I was like, why not? She says, I'm a Jew. I was like, oh, that's great. Um, like, uh, uh you're, you're Jewish from lineage, or, or you're a practicing Jew. And she said, uh, I'm a practicing Jew. She told me that she was a, a reformed Jew. Okay, so I start talking to her a little bit, and, and I asked her, this is this is where I didn't make a mistake, but I said, who do you think Jesus was? She got mad. OK, I asked her who Jesus was and, and, and she says he was a rabbi. And I'll say, I'll give you that he was a rabbi, but he taught that he was God. So he was more than a rabbi. And she says, well, I don't believe that. 
I was like, well, she, I, I start trying to use the New Testament a little bit. She says, I don't believe the New Testament. Uh, that, that's, uh, all the people that, all the followers of Jesus, uh, they wrote the New Testament. Uh, I believe the Old Testament. I said, okay, can I share something with you from the Old Testament? She goes, no, this conversation is over. Okay, completely rejected, right? Uh, but even if I did get the opportunity to share with her, uh, Something from the Old Testament, whether it was uh, Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or the promise made to Abraham. There's, there's so much in the Old Testament, obviously, that points to Jesus. It's not going to be my words that draw God to herself. It's going to be Jesus Christ lifting the veil. Let me show you. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, it says... But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The only way for us to see both the Old Testament and the New Testament for what it is, is when we turn to the Lord and he lifts the veil. I remember reading the Bible before, just before I became a Christian. I didn't get anything. I didn't understand. I didn't believe any of it until finally I turned to the Lord. And guess what? The veil was lifted. I started seeing that. No, wow, this is true. This stuff is legitimate. It's not a bunch of fairy tales. We can confirm so many of these things through history. The Israelites did then, and still do, for the most part, have that veil. Not all of them. Paul and Barnabas are Jewish. But a large portion of them are blinded to the actual truth of the New Testament. The text continues. Acts chapter 13, verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, They asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are witnesses to the people. That right there is the essentials of the gospel. He says all these things that happened to Jesus were a fulfillment of scripture. And he only lists a few and he lists a few more later on. But when we look at all the prophecies that Jesus fulfills, he fulfills over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Literally. Uh, the amount of prophecies that he fulfills is mathematically impossible for one individual to fulfill all of those prophecies. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Literally, even mathematically, the Bible proves that Jesus was the Messiah. There was a great study done a while back by Dr. Stoner uh, at, what was it? I forget what college it was. Uh, anyways, so he says this was a fulfillment of scripture uh, that Jesus would die and raise from the dead. Uh, he didn't just die. He didn't just uh, die on the cross and get left in the tomb. And that was the end of him. No, he was raised from the dead. And it says for many days, uh, there were people that saw him, that witnessed him. We're not just talking about like a one time thing. Jesus going to the disciples and saying, hey, I rose and then he departed. No, we're talking about over many days. Jesus, not just revealing himself to the disciples, but revealing himself, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, to over 500 different people. He's making it, he's proving it uh, throughout history that the resurrection is legitimate. And that's exactly what Paul is preaching here. He's not preaching what he believes. He's not just preaching philosophy. He's preaching history. He's saying you can verify these things right now. These people are still alive. This is actually what happened this isn't just something that happened long ago he's like this happened recently if you don't believe me ask one of them the text continues in verse 32 and we declare to you glad tidings glad tidings uh, just means good news that's the gospel that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. We'll get into that in a second. 
But Paul tells us that all the promises that God the Father made were fulfilled in Jesus Christ the Son. That's point number three. All God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All God's promises. That is wild. God made a lot of promises in the Old Testament. But when you look at this trail of promises, just want to take a brief look at it. Remember one of the initial promises was back in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, what did God say? He said, hey, uh, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, they're going to be at enmity against each other. The seed of the woman, not the seed of a man, because Jesus was born from a virgin. And he says, in this enmity, uh, he says that the seed of the serpent's going to strike his heel and he, the seed of the woman, is going to crush his head. That was fulfilled on the cross. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Jesus, he overcame hell and death. But it doesn't end there. Later on, another promise was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to bless the nations, all the nations, not just the Israelites. I'm going to bless the nations through your seed, singular. Not just through your seeds, the people that come from you. Through one individual, I'm going to bless all the nations. Later on, a promise is made to Judah that the scepter will not depart, that there will be a a leader from the tribe of Judah that will reign and rule for eternity. And then through David and the Davidic covenant, it was promised that this leader, this Messiah, would come through him. Those are just to name a few, but we see all these promises that God made throughout the Old Testament are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. All these Old Testament saints, many of them flawed, all of them flawed, uh, but they're commended for their faith in one way or another. And I want you to see something here. In Hebrews chapter 11, as he closes out this chapter, though there are all these people that loved the Lord and did radical names for, radical things for Yahweh, it says in Hebrews 11 verse 39, and all these, meaning all these people, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All these people. He talks about them being sawn in two, getting thrown in lion's dens, getting persecuted, getting uh, killed. Across the board, all these different things. He says, all those people went through all of that and they didn't see the promise fulfilled. What promise? The promise of the Messiah. Because all those Old Testament saints and what they were doing was all works and efforts to point to Jesus Christ. We're so blessed to live in a period, an era where the promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We don't have to wait for the Messiah. Yeah, we wait for him to come back, but he already came the first time. We see how everything from the Old Testament points to what Jesus accomplished in the New Testament. The saints of all, they longed for this moment, the time when Messiah would come on the scene and we get to live in light of the fulfillment of all those promises. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 1, 20, it says, All the promises of God in Him, in who? In Jesus Christ, are yes and amen. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we gain the benefit of seeing God's promises fulfilled in our lives and also in the life to come. Because there are general promises that God makes, such as eternal life, But there are also specific promises that he makes to individual children. And all those are fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. As we have a relationship with him, we get to see the fullness of the promises of God. So he points to some of these promises. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So we see the Messiah wouldn't just be a man, but he'd be the son of God. We see that that title, son of God, is claiming equality in nature to God. He was more than a man. Text says in verse 34, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another song, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
This is David speaking. But guess what? David died and his body decomposed. He saw corruption. That didn't happen with Jesus. This was all pointing to Jesus. David wasn't pointing to himself. He was pointing to the Messiah that would come. Paul goes on to explain this in verse 36. For David, after he had served his uh, his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, meaning he died, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. His body corrupted. But he... Whom God raised up saw no corruption. Jesus died, but his body didn't corrupt. It didn't decompose. In fact, it was resurrected and glorified. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul's saying, you want forgiveness? It only comes through Jesus. We can only be eternally forgiven by God through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, some might say, well, what's up with that? What if I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe there's a God? Can't I just go to God and ask him to forgive me? No, it doesn't just work like that. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a payment. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus is the only one that led a perfect life and died a perfect death. There's separation between us and God because of sin. We can't bridge the gap alone. Only through the cross can we bridge that gap and go from our sin to God's righteousness. Some might say, well, I don't want to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we say we don't want to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what we're telling God. Your sacrifice of your only begotten son, it wasn't good enough. I'm going to trust in my own sacrifices. And when we trust in our own sacrifices, what we're saying is, I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. I think I'm righteous enough to enter into the presence of God. If that is where you stand, good luck with that one. Live in a perfectly righteous life. I know I can't do that. The Bible says here in Acts chapter 13, not only is there forgiveness, look at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is uh, preached to you the forgiveness of sins, verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things through which uh, you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So not only do we get forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we get justification. What's justification? Some people say that saying, please don't say it, just as if I never sinned, okay? That's true, but it's only partially true. Why? Because just as if I ever sinned implies that, that God's just not holding me guilty for my sins. But justification is more than that. It's not just God saying, okay, you're not guilty, okay? We're not going to charge you the consequences. Justification is that he imputes his perfect righteousness to us. So not only does he forgive us of our sins, we're covered with the blood of the lamb and he says you look like my son you look like jesus. i know i don't look like jesus but god says in my eyes you do you're covered with the blood of the lamb i declared you perfectly righteous not only are you forgiven you are declared perfectly righteous acts chapter 13 verse 40 beware therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Paul warns him. He already shared the gospel with them. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. And what he's getting at is, hey, listen, it was also prophesied that uh, there is going to be this work by Jesus Christ on the cross. And you have a choice to believe or not believe. Don't be those that hear about this work and don't believe it. Don't be those people. There's a strict judgment for people who hear the gospel and don't respond to it to believe. There's more. There's added judgment for people that hear the message of Jesus Christ and they choose to reject it. I'll show you. It's Jesus' words in uh, Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. 
He says in verse 13, Woe to you, Cherazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who rejects He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. See what he says to these cities? He says, hey, you got more reason to believe than anyone else. Why? Because Jesus did miracles in this city. Many of them we have documented, none in Chorazin. But he spent a ton of time in Capernaum. That was kind of where he set up shop. What he tells these people, you guys have heard the word. You've seen the miracles. If you still choose to reject the gospel, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Tyre and Sidon. It's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's telling them because they've heard and because they've seen a stricter judgment awaits them. Acts chapter 13, verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So I'm not sure if these Gentiles were actually in uh, in the synagogue and it's referring to the uh, God-fears or if they overheard it and they were outside. We're not sure... Um, the text isn't very clear about that, but we see these Jews that heard the gospel, they end up walking away. And these Gentiles that heard at least some of it, if not all of what Paul said, they said, preach this to us next Sabbath. We want to hear the gospel. They hungered for the word of God. Do you hunger for God's word? Or do you have the mentality? I heard all this already. I've heard this. I've heard a teaching on Acts chapter 13. I've read the Bible a handful of times. I know all this stuff already. That's not hungering for the word of God. The Bible says this, uh, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness for you shall be filled. If you want to be satisfied, you got to be hungering for the right thing. And hungering for the word is hungering for the right thing. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, um, uh, if you know or you don't know, Jeremiah had a brutal ministry. Uh, I know Kevin's going through it with some people uh, in his home group on Thursday. So they, there's people in this room that I know have been studying it. Jeremiah had it rough. I would not want the ministry of Jeremiah. And God gave him strict, hard words of, of judgment and discipline and all these different things. And you know what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15, verse 16? He says, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. If I was Jeremiah and God said, hey, I got something else to speak to you, I'd probably say, please don't. I don't want to hear another one. What you keep telling me is so hard to hear. My heart is crushing as the weeping prophet um, uh, uh, shows us through Lamentations and Jeremiah. The message that God gave him was heartbreaking because the people didn't respond to it. Not Jeremiah. He says, your words were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Even though, God, you've been giving me hard words. Give me difficult things to understand. Difficult things to communicate. I still love hearing your word. I want more of it. Why? Because I know you better when you speak to me. And as I'm in your word more and more, I understand who you are. And I understand who I am. A man or a woman can't produce that hunger in another individual. Only God can produce that hunger. And maybe you're going through a season where you say, man, I used to hunger for the word and now I just don't. I don't really care. I don't really get into the word. I don't really want to learn anymore. I can't change your heart. No one else can change your heart, but God can change your heart. Ask him, say, God, I want to hunger again. I know I, know, I, know I don't know everything and I want to know more. And I don't want to and probably just think I know it all because I don't. I don't. You don't. None of us do. Lord, so give me that hunger. I want to desire your word. This is the response of the Gentiles. Please preach to us this message again the next Sabbath. They couldn't get enough of it. Acts chapter 13, verse 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. These people, they saw the character of Paul and Barnabas, and they said, these are men that are worthy to be followed. 
Paul and Barnabas wasn't dragging these people along. They were, hey guys, follow me. Nothing like that. They just saw something in Paul and Barnabas. They decided to follow them. So as these people are following Paul and Barnabas, it says that Paul and Barnabas, they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. This is point number four. We're called to continue in the grace of God. We're called to continue in the grace of God. It appears that they already believed, they already received the grace of God, but grace is not just something that we receive at salvation. It's something that we're called to continue in. It's something that we're called to grow in. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Peter 3, 18, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continue on. Grow in it. How do we grow in it? Well, those two things go together, grace and knowledge. As I grow in intimacy with the Lord, I grow in grace. I realize how much grace He has on my life. I realize how merciful and gracious and forgiving He is. And that mercy and that grace, it doesn't produce in me the desire to take advantage of it and say, well, He's just going to have grace on me anyways. No, quite the opposite. That grace brings me to my knees with such a remorseful heart that I go, man, He's so good. I don't want to keep doing that thing. I want to change. I want to turn from my sin. Because see, grace, we don't just grow in it. Grace is supposed to teach us to do something. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Titus 2, 11 to 14. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The focus is grace. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Paul tells us through Titus, to Titus, that the grace of God is supposed to teach us. The grace of God is supposed to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We're not talking about working for our salvation. We're not even talking about salvation. We're talking about sanctification. I receive the grace of God at salvation But guess what? I need grace more than one time, right? I need grace every single day. That's why his mercies are new every morning. And as God bestows mercy and grace on me, I don't just go, whatever, my mercies are going to be new every morning. So I'm just going to wild out and do whatever I want. No, it's like, man, God, I want to do better today. I want to live a little better. I want to, I want to live a more righteous lifestyle. God, I want to please you. You've been so gracious to me. I don't deserve this life. But I want to do the best with this life to glorify you. That's why they say continue in the grace of God. Don't just take advantage of the grace. Allow the grace to do that work in your heart that it's supposed to do. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Okay, almost the whole city comes together to heal the world. It could have been like 100,000 people. We don't know. That's a lot of people. One day, as I was saying this, man, I wish one day, maybe it's the barbecue this weekend, that everyone in Running Springs, heck, Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, Arrow Bear, Green Valley, like that they would all just come here to the church, okay? If they did that on Wednesday, we'd probably be in trouble. I know we don't have... Um, 4,000 plus burgers, but I would be so blessed by that. We see the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. It's leading so many people to be interested. They see the power of God displayed in other people's lives. And they say, I want some of that. I want a piece of that. That changed you that quick? The grace of God? Jesus, your Savior? Man, I want forgiveness. I I, want to be a part of this. So they come together to hear the word. It says in verse 45, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. They're contradicting the message of Paul and Barnabas. Paul, he knows his stuff. He was a Pharisee, okay? So he knows the Old Testament, but now the veil's been lifted. He recognizes that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it says they're contradicting him. They're committing blasphemy. How? Uh, likely because Paul was saying that Jesus is equal to God. That's a crucial part of the gospel, claiming that he's the son of God. They were likely saying Jesus isn't God which is considered blasphemy because Jesus is God. So they commit blasphemy. But in their efforts to commit blasphemy, what they're really trying to do is prevent these Gentiles from getting saved. 
So the Jews, they reject the gospel and they say, because we don't want eternal life, we don't want you to have eternal life either. Um, anyone have siblings in here? Yeah, okay. Um, so my brother used to do stuff like this before he was saved, so we won't hold it against him. Uh, but say, like this is just an example. Uh, say um, uh, he had some food, right? He got a sub or something like that. Uh, and I'm like, hey man, can I have the rest of that? You're not going to eat it? He goes, no, scrapes it off in the garbage can. I don't want it, but I don't want you to have it either. It's like, oh, what's that? That is so cruel. That's so evil. That's what the Jews are doing. They say, we're throwing eternal life in the trash, but we don't want you to have it either. So they're coming against Paul's message because they don't want the Gentiles to accept the same God that they've accepted. Why? Because they take pride in being the chosen people of God. They think that they're better than the Gentiles. In fact, as we've mentioned in the past, they typically wouldn't even come under the same roof as a Gentile. That was forbidden in the culture. So to say that the Jews and the Gentiles are on an equal level playing field now, no way. We won't accept it. We're better than them. So if you're saying that we're equal with the Gentiles, we want no part in this message. We don't want it, and we certainly don't want them to have it. We don't want them claiming that they're worshiping the same God that we are. Acts chapter 13. Don't tell my brother I said that. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas, in the midst of this rejection of these Jews, they didn't cower in fear. They didn't run away. What does it say? It says that they grew bold and said, they continued to speak, they continued to step into what they were called to do regardless of the opposition, regardless of the kickback of these specific Jews in this text. We're called to do the same. In the midst of rejection, in the midst of unrighteousness, we're called to stand up and stand firm in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So a while back... um, we were uh, supposed to go on this mission trip to Moldova. That's Eastern Europe. It, it specifically was for this sex trafficking uh, ministry. Uh, so we fly to New York, but because of the snow, God had closed the door. We weren't able to go to Moldova. Uh, so we're like, man, this is unfortunate. We're planning on going on this mission trip, um, and we can't. Well, long story short, uh, we ended up having to take a train all the way back from New York uh, to Florida. It was pretty long, like 30-something hours. So we're like, okay, we're on this train. God's got to have something else. It's like, you know, when God closed the door in Acts 16 from Paul, he says, no, you're going to go here to Macedonia. So we said, hey, how can we get the gospel out here on this train? So uh, we're trying to share with some people praying. uh, And at one point, we're just having fun playing cards. And I hear, okay, nobody's too young in here. Okay. I hear um, these two teenagers, like 16 years old, talking to these, just double check, talking to these, uh, these elementary school kids. And what they're saying is, oh, I slept with this girl and I've been with this girl and I've had all these really elementary scores. These high schoolers, you know, that age group are talking to these, I've done all these drugs. I've done all this. I'm hearing this. I'm starting to get hot. I'm starting to get heated. And so I stand up, I walk over to them. Probably shouldn't have started off like this. And I said, you guys think you're cool talking to these kids about all these things that you've done? Uh, but then I proceeded to say, hey, I get it. I used to think this stuff was cool too until Jesus got a hold of me, yada, 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 shared my testimony, shared the gospel on the spot. These two kids got saved. They recognized that the life that they were living, it just wasn't worth it. But that wouldn't have happened if I didn't like Paul and Barnabas grow bold and speak up. You know, I don't think this, I didn't think the conversation was going to end with two guys getting saved. It started with having a conviction that unrighteousness was going on. And not only that, they were leading these kids astray. And I saw myself in them. I said, no, 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 no. I want to stop them before it becomes uh, them 25 with several overdoses. And they live this hideous life. Two years later, Terrence, one of the guys, he texted me and he said, because I gave him my number. I talked to him a few times, and he was kind of struggling. But then two years later, he said, man, thank you so much for calling me out on that train. Like, thank you. I know what you said to me is true. I know the gospel is true, and I appreciate you saying that. Those conversations aren't always fun to have, confronting people, 
when something like that is happening. But we see the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, they grow bold. They share their faith. They don't cower in fear. They stand firm in the truth. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. We're almost done. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. We see from the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites, they were called to be a light to the Gentiles. Not only that, but salvation would be offered to the Gentiles. So this isn't just like a new New Testament thing. This is an Old Testament thing as well. And because the Jews rejected the message, now the gospel is presented to the rest of the world. They had first dibs, and many of them didn't take advantage of that. Verse 48, now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. the Gentiles recognized they're just not making this stuff up. They're quoting Old Testament scripture from the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. This is legitimate. This isn't just like something that they decided they wanted to share. This is something that God had planned. From the very beginning, from the foundations of the earth. So they rejoice. They rejoice in their salvation. It's something that they're excited about. So too for us. Our salvation shouldn't get old. It should be something that we're grateful for. As we mentioned, His mercies are new every morning. I got to recognize, man, God's given me the gospel not just for seven years ago. He's given me the gospel today. To to live by the gospel today, to recognize what Jesus has forgiven me of today, that's enough to rejoice over. Acts chapter 13, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So despite the attacks of the enemy, what happens? The church keeps spreading. The enemy working through the Jews, all this opposition and committing blasphemy, all these different things. Uh, we see that the gospel keeps spreading. The enemy can't stop what God had started. It, it's just impossible. The word is going to continue to spread. And we see actually that a church uh, is planted here in Antioch, Pisidia, uh, in two Sabbaths. Okay, two, imagine that. Two weeks you plant a church. That's pretty powerful. Uh, but that's what happened. That's the moving of the spirit as these men boldly communicate the word of God. Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So here comes another attack of the enemy. And this time they expel them. They get them out of Antioch, Pisidia through persecution. And it says... In verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. They shook off the dust from their feet. This was a cultural thing. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, uh, it's what Jesus told the disciples to do if their message is rejected. If this city rejects your message, shake off the dust from your feet and move to the next city. What you were saying publicly by shaking off the dust of your feet, it was a profession of judgment. Okay, You're being judged because you didn't receive the word, you didn't receive this message, and it was from God. I was thinking about this as I was studying this this morning with the lady that I talked to yesterday. Should I just shook off the... No, I don't think that would have gone very well. She's already mad at me. I don't recommend it, okay? But it worked for them, apparently. Um, so, they continued on. They didn't stop. They went to Iconium. They didn't let the rejection and the persecution and all these things deter them from what God had called them to. They persisted. We'll see more of that in the next chapter. Lastly, Acts chapter 13, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Everything that went on, there were some good things, some bad things. But we see the disciples, they're rejoicing. They're filled with joy. Why? Because they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue pointing people to Jesus. Fifth and final point, quick one. Pointing people to Jesus brings joy. Pointing people to Jesus brings joy. Sometimes pointing people to Jesus can be discouraging. Yesterday was super discouraging for me. I'll tell you, I haven't stopped thinking about that. Uh, the conversation that I had with the lady, man, maybe I should have said this differently or I should have done this. I don't really know that I could have said anything. She just didn't want to talk to me. Uh, but there, there's a reality that sometimes as we purpose to do what God has called us to do, specifically pointing people to Jesus, uh, we can get a little beat up. But the disciples, they don't allow the beating up to lead to a place where they're beaten down they're standing up they're continuing on and not only that they have joy 
They're being fulfilled by this ministry, by doing what God has called them to do. It's exactly what Jesus tells us back in John chapter 4. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My satisfaction, my joy is found in doing what my father is asking me to do. So even if I get rejected, even if things don't go as good as I think they should go, there's joy in simply pointing people to the love of Jesus. Sadly, though, as Christians, sometimes as we purpose to answer the Lord's calling on our life, as we get beat up, as we face trials and infirmities and things of that nature, uh, we can allow that beating up to lead us to the place of, of being beaten down. And we can kind of walk around like Eeyore, you know, Eeyore, right? Like, the uh woe is me, right? It's like, wait a minute. No, the Bible uh, paints the picture of Christians like they're more like Tigger than Eeyore, right? There's an excitement. There's a zeal. We're jumping around. We're going to continue on. Nothing phases us. I'm not saying you have to be a Tigger, but don't be an Eeyore. There should be joy in our walk. There should be joy in pointing people to Jesus. It shouldn't be a burden. Rather, it should be a blessing. And if we're not having that joy, it means something's wrong. I get going through seasons of sorrow and all of that. But there should be some type of consistent joy. If we don't have that consistent joy, then maybe we're too focused on our problems and neglecting our calling. Because guess what? This life isn't about us. It's about Jesus. And as we live this life, he calls us to point people to him. Because it's all about him. It's not about us. And we can get into these places like Eero where we're wallowing in all our problems, all the bad things that have happened to us. When Jesus says, hey, you're here for a short time. These problems, they're temporary. But guess what? The problems that people have in this earth, the problem of rejecting me, that problem's eternal. So how about you worry about that problem and not all the problems that you have going on? Because yeah, you might have a hard time right now, but there's going to be people that have a hard eternity. And he uses the church to switch the script and bring the others to that place of joy. But it's not going to happen unless we point people to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for these men, Paul and Barnabas, and how they stood so firm in your truth, God. They, they did whatever it took uh, to point people to you, and they did it joyfully. They did it willingly, uh, Lord. So I pray that you would give us that same heart, God, that we would look at as, as an opportunity, um, whether it be in word uh, or in character, uh, in interactions, God, that we would recognize uh, the reason that we're here, Lord, is ultimately to point people to you, to glorify you, Whatever relationships we have, whatever our jobs are, uh, whatever we do, God, we're called to do it as unto you. So, so teach us what that means. Help us to understand that, Lord, and, and help us to walk in that calling. In Jesus' name, amen.